Jesus wants to find his mission this way in John 10, 10. I have come that you might have life, life in all its fullness, an abundant, vibrant life, a flourishing life. And that's an attractive offer to anybody. You know, psychologists might call it becoming self-actualized. A coach might say you found your sweet spot. A boss might say you're living up to your potential. However you phrase it, this idea of a flourishing life is usually never just the result of one thing. Usually it's a combination of, of several things that overlap and work together to give a person a sense of wholeness or, or happiness. The Japanese have a word to describe this idea of overlapping happiness. It's called aikigai. Loosely translated, aikigai is your reason to get out of bed in the morning. It's what you live for, what makes you feel happy, and what makes life worth living. Aikigai looks at this uh, through four overlapping circles. The first circle, and this diagram is actually on the back of your bulletin. The first circle is figuring out what do you love. What do you really enjoy doing? What gets your blood pumping? What is it that you look forward to? What stirs your heart? What, what kind of motivates you, uh, makes you feel good? Figuring out what you really love is the beginning. The second circle then asks, what are you good at? Because it's one thing to be passionate about something. It's another thing to be any good at it. I might really like golf, for instance, but I can't sink a, a two-foot putt. Maybe I can learn. Maybe I can get better, and that's a good challenge for younger people starting off on their careers or for anyone who wants to take a new path in life. You might be able to improve your abilities with education, practice, discipline. But being able to match what you do, what, what you love with what you're good at gives your life a huge emotional boost. The third circle asks then, what can you get paid for? Does your passion and your talent translate into a career, a profession, a real job? You know, I might like, like, like to make birdhouses. And I might make really good birdhouses, but will anybody actually buy my birdhouses? If you can't get paid for it, then that's called a hobby. You might be an aspiring writer or a brilliant inventor, but if no one will pay you, then that's a hobby. If you're good at something and you're getting paid for it, but you no longer love it, that's an unhappy job. And that's where a lot of people get stuck, especially later in life. They, they hate what they're doing, but they can't let go of the paycheck. Being able to match what you love with what you're good at and then finding someone who will pay you for it, that's golden. And finally, the fourth circle is what the world needs. In other words, am I making a valuable contribution to the world or am I just kind of taking up space? Am I a positive influence or is it all about me? Benefiting others is what, is what brings a sense of inner value. It may not be through your job. You might find your value in volunteering for a cause, in finding your ministry, teaching Sunday school, serving in a homeless shelter, some people, you know, some place where you connect uh, your passion with what the world needs. And you don't need to get paid for it because you just love doing it and it helps others. So Aikigai is that sweet spot where all those four circles overlap and come together. Now, I don't know anybody who kind of hits that exactly, but I think we'd all like to get as close to the center as possible. And there's a ton of stuff online if you want to find your Aikigai sweet spot and if you're interested in pursuing that. Well, Jesus didn't use the overlapping circles of a Venn diagram to describe the fullness he was talking about. Instead, he used a variety of word pictures of a flourishing life. And we're looking at five of them. Last week it was the olive tree from Psalm 52. Our high school seniors will be preaching on the image of light, uh, then the bread of life, and then Colleen will finish up the series with an image of the sheep and the good shepherd. 
But today we're going to look at a beautiful scripture where Jesus uses the idea of a vineyard to describe this abundant, flourishing life. Let me set the table before we get to John 15. It's the night Jesus was arrested. He's with the disciples in the upper room. Jesus has kind of called out Judas and then broke bread with the, with the disciples, pouring wine as symbols of his coming sacrifice. The disciples are confused. They're a little worried, fearful. They're leaning in to catch every word Jesus said. And kind of imagine yourself in the middle of that group as now the disciples follow Jesus out of the upper room, out into the cool night air. Carrying lanterns or torches, you head towards a familiar face to a garden on the Mount of Olives. Uh, just outside of Jerusalem, you follow Jesus first down a hill through the narrow winding streets of Jerusalem and then outside the city walls to the Kidron Valley. The valley is a beautiful place. It's terraced with ancient vineyards. There are rows and rows of neatly tended grapevines, plants that have been bearing fruit for many generations. There are signs of new spring growth beginning to appear as you walk through the trestles teeming with grapevines. Jesus just kind of reaches over to a branch and then he did what he did so often. He took something simple from the immediate environment and turned it into one of the most significant object lessons of spiritual truth. Standing in the shadows of the vineyard, he talks quietly about branches and grapes and how a gardener cares for the vineyard. Let's hear John 15, 1 through 8. Jesus said, I am the vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. You are, are already trimmed or clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Live in me, let me live in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain joined to the vine, and neither can you bear fruit unless you remain attached to me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you stay attached to me and I to you, you will bear much fruit. But separated from me... You can't do anything. If you do not remain in me, you are like the branch that is thrown away. It withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. What does God really want from us? Jesus says it so simply here. God wants us to live a life that will yield a fruitful harvest for him. He wants our lives to be fruitful for him, and he's working in us right now to make this happen. God's plan, God's desire is to help his children flourish, to be emotionally, spiritually vibrant, healthy, productive. He wants us to experience his presence and joy, to know the power of, of answered prayer, and he illustrates this vibrant, fruit-producing life with the simple analogy of the vineyard. So let's break that down. Jesus is the vine. Not the long, leafy limbs. In a vineyard, the vine is the trunk of the plant that grows up out of the ground. The vine is usually kept at kind of like waist high, about three feet high. And the vine has a large gnarl out of which all the other branches grow and kind of extend along the trellis. The vine is what goes into the soil and draws up all the nutrients to feed the rest of the plant. So Jesus is the vine. And then Jesus says the Father is the gardener. He's the keeper of the vineyard, the vine dresser. His job is simply to coax uh, the most grapes as possible from the plants to get the highest yield. He gives the vineyard all the care, attention it needs to flourish. That's the Father's job. You and I, as Christ followers, we're the branches. 
The branches come from the vine and are tied to the trestles up off the ground to let in oxygen and sunlight and let it circulate, to allow access for tending. We're the focus of the gardener's efforts because it's the branches that produce the crop. God's goal throughout Scripture is for his people to be fruitful. What does that mean? What kind of fruit is God looking for? Well, I think it's two things, kind of inner and outer fruit. Inner fruit, and this kind of overlaps with what we did last week on the olive tree from Psalm 52 and Psalm 1. You know, if you missed any week, you can always go back to our website and, or the church app and watch the video that way. Inner fruit is when you allow God to nurture Christ-like qualities within your personality and relationships. These are called fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's who you'd be if Christ was living your life. Character qualities that God wants to develop in each of us so that we become more and more like Jesus. Inner fruit means the transformation of your personality, your actions, your emotions, so that you become a more Christ-like person. But outer fruit you bear outward fruit when you allow God to work through you to bring him glory. You do that by sharing your faith and seeing others come to faith in Christ and through practical acts of kindness and service for Christ in the church and in the outer world, in the community. Outer fruit is how Christ is expressed into the lives of others through you. So it's important that we bear both inner and outer fruit for Jesus. And you see, we are on this planet really to fulfill God's dream, God's dream of a world that operates solely on the basis of his love and mercy. God is not here to fulfill our dreams. We're here to fulfill God's dreams. And bearing inner and outer fruit is how we bring him glory. The fruitful branch doesn't happen automatically. Branches have to respond to the work of the gardener. And what we see in Jesus' analogy is that all branches don't respond the same way. The gardener is looking at various branches, and some of them are coming up empty. He's got an empty basket because there are no branches, uh, there are branches that bear no fruit. Then there's a second basket, and that's got just a little bit of fruit in it, which is better than nothing, but not much to get excited about. Then a third basket, which is half full of plump, juicy grapes, and that's good. It's a good return, but can we get any better? Well, yes, because then there's a fourth basket that just overflows. Jesus says, much fruit. The branches are bent over, heavy with grapes. And so there's a progression in Jesus' parable. And we're created to bear more fruit and still more fruit for him. If we're not bearing fruit, then we are living a substandard faith experience. We're not flourishing. Whenever we, in our Christian life, wherever we might be, God expects more fruit from us. The question to ask after reading the scripture today is, well, how much fruit do you see in your life? How fruitful are you for Christ? Jesus chose us for abundance, and he expects abundance, created us to desire abundance. So let's not settle for half-empty baskets. Look specifically at basket number one, the basket with no fruit. Ever hear someone express the feeling that, you know, they're not on speaking terms with God anymore? I'm not talking about a non-believer. I mean a Christian, someone who's given their life to Christ, but for some reason there's been a hardship, a disappointment, an unanswered prayer, the loss of a loved one, or just old-fashioned, willful rebellion, whatever, they, 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 feel that they don't feel the same connection with Christ anymore. I know I felt that a number of times at different stages in my life, times when there's little love or joy in your faith. And consequently, then they're bearing no fruit in their Christian life. Jesus says in verse 2, He cuts off every branch in me 
that bears no fruit. Well, that sounds serious. Some translations even say throw away. Does that mean people can lose their salvation if you persist in a life that shows no fruit for Christ, no evidence of salvation? Can you lose it? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, no, I don't think so. Jesus is describing these branches in this way. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. The New Testament repeatedly describes believers as being in Christ. Our salvation is not based on our efforts or our fruitfulness. That's why Jesus uses the phrase, you're already clean or trimmed in verse 3. Jesus is clearly talking about Christians who have a fruitless faith. Sadly, that means it's possible to be in Christ and not produce any fruit for Christ. But the word cut off or takes away are unfortunate translations here. The Greek word is aro, which is used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. In Matthew 14, 20, the same word describes the disciples picking up 12 baskets full of food after the feeding of the 5,000. It means to, to lift up. Same thing in Matthew 27, 32, where a man named Simon is forced to carry Jesus' cross. He has to pick it up. That's why lift it up is a better translation. Because in a vineyard, branches that tend to trail around the ground, well, they don't bear much fruit. Grapes are not like pumpkins. You know, they don't grow at dirt level. The leaves get coated with dust, and they get soggy when it rains. It gets mildewed. The branch becomes sick. So a gardener, does he just then automatically cut off that, that branch and throw it away? Well, no, the branch is too valuable. The gardener lifts it up and ties it to the trestle again. He lifts it up, that unproductive branch, and cleans it off. Helps it to flourish again by exposing it to sunlight and clean air. When a, one of God's branches falls into the dirt, God doesn't throw it away. He doesn't abandon it. When a Christian lives some kind of a willful, sinful life, it's like a dirt coating that leaves on the leaves of the branch. The branch suffers, there's no fruit, but God desires to lift us up out of the mud. If your life is consistently bearing no fruit, God is going to intervene. He will act out of love. He may let you experience the pain of your consequences, but like a good parent, he never disciplines out of rage or anger, but to produce a better result. And we may feel pain, but it's for our own good if we're actually willing to listen. He disturbs us, helps us to see what's going wrong. God won't ever hurt an innocent person to indirectly discipline you. For example, your mother's not going to get cancer if you're cheating on your expense reports. But consequences are real. You could lose your job. God is trying to get our attention and gives us a chance to respond. If the branch is sick, it needs to be healthy again. So the first basket is a season of discipline where the Father is reaching down to intervene, to lift you up, bring you back to fruitfulness. God does not see us as a chronic problem, but as a chosen, carefully tended branch that is only one choice away from a better life. And that choice is repentance. It's never too late to begin to bear fruit. Baskets two and three are basically the same. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it will be even more fruitful. God's strategy for coaxing more from us is, is to give us less. His plan is to prune, to thin, reduce. His plan for more is less. If your life bears some fruit, his plan for you is to prune so that you can bear more. And you might feel like you're in a series of a, a, a season of pruning, that God's coming at you with some sharp shears. He's delighted that you're producing some fruit, but he has the expectation that you could do even more. God likes your energy, likes your potential, and so thoughtfully God snips away. 
I think our church is in a season of pruning, and he wants us to respond with greater growth. Grapevines just like naturally want, like to grow, but often they can grow so fast that they grow leaves rather than fruit. So pruning is the gardener's most important technique for a plentiful harvest. You know, when I prune a bush, it barely survives. But if you watch someone who really knows what they're doing, they can cut things back pretty drastically, but the result is a fuller and richer harvest. What might God be pruning in your life today? Activities that are maybe sucking the life out of you, like sucker shoots. A schedule that prevents you from being fruitful. You know, the bush is just out of control. He cuts away parts to make room for growth. Parts that are draining time and energy from what is truly important. Maybe there's a relationship that drags you away from the Lord, some sour people or somebody who inhibits your faith rather than helps it. I mean, a good question to ask is, you know, about your friendships is, are you influencing them towards Christ or are they influencing you away from Christ? There might be habits that need to be changed. Uh, you need a new start, so he cuts off and starts over so you can become more effective with what you have. Channel your energy in the right direction. If you're scattered, you can't have much impact. The purpose of pruning is to increase the size and the quality of your fruitfulness for Christ. It allows the sun to reach you, more air to refresh you. So discipline and pruning are not the same thing. Pruning is not related to some area of sin. It doesn't call for repentance, but for release. Let me say that again. Pruning is not related to some area of sin. It doesn't call for repentance, but for release. Let go of what is draining God's life from you and make room for God to add his blessing. Then there's basket four, much fruit. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, stay in me, remain in me. Stay attached to me. Abiding is where the branch connects to the vine. That's where the life-giving nutrients flow up from the vine to the branches. Sap flows from the vine to the branches. That's what causes the growth. The only limitation is the size of the connection. The, lar the, the largest, least obstructed touch point will have the greatest potential for harvest. So if your life bears a lot of fruit, God's going to invite you to abide even more deeply with him. Jesus says this word that we translate as abide or remain. He says it 10 times in John 15. 10 times. We've got to be listening to that. We must be connected. If we want more of God, we must be more with God. To remain or to abide, it's a command, not a suggestion. God does the lifting, does the pruning, but to remain or to abide is our action. We do it. Ray Stedman says, we must decide to do things which expose ourselves to him and keep ourselves in contact with him. Imagine a grapevine severed a uh, grape branch severed from the vine. It could be green, have some grapes on it, but pretty soon it's going to shrivel because there's no life in it. It's impossible for it to produce even one more new grape. You might as well throw it on the fire. And Jesus is not threatening hell here, as some have misinterpreted his words. He's just pointing out the obvious, that if a branch is no longer attached to the vine, it's got no value. There's no spiritual use to it. But if you stay connected to him, draw spiritual nourishment from him, if you allow his power to flow through you, nothing can hold you back from reaching an abundant life. Remaining or abiding simply means living in Christ's presence daily. And again, these are the basics. A basic daily quiet time. That's it, but not quite it. Worship. 
That's it, but not quite it. Remaining with him also has a sense of desire. A desire, like Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask of the Lord that I may seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Remaining is a relationship, not an activity. You can do all those things, Bible study, prayer, going to worship, serving. You can do that for years and never really abide in Christ. In fact, that's why those things become so dry. Life with Christ is not an appointment that I check off my to-do list. It is a life of awareness, of attentiveness, of openness to his presence. God will produce fruit in our lives, inner and outer fruit, if we remain and stay attached to him. We'll be amazed at the fruitful life you can lead. God has supernatural abundance in mind for us. God is always at work in our lives in one of these ways. You could be in a season of lifting up, of discipline, and then the response is to repent. Turn to him. He wants to lift you up and begin again. You can be fruitful. You can rediscover the joy of your faith. You could be in a season of pruning, and the response there is to release. God cuts into your life for your own good, so release your life to him. Give it over to him. Trust his hands at work pruning you. Or you could be in a series, season of abundance, and the response is just to stay attached. Enjoy the pleasure of his presence. Enjoy the harvest, the sense of intimacy, the source of life. So repent, release, remain. My deepest desire is for our church to be fruitful for Christ, to flourish for him. The church is a vineyard, but it will only be as productive as the individual branches. And so that's where the fruit grows. So inner and outer fruit. That's where the action is. Let's encourage each other to be fruitful for Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this very simple but rich and complex image of the vineyard and how we can become fruitful. Whatever season we might be in, Lord, help us to take the next step, whether it's through repentance or through release or just through the, the pleasure of remaining in your presence and remaining in you, Lord. Whatever that next step might be for us, help us to take it seriously so that we can pursue this flourishing life and find our sweet spot in you. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.